I can still remember the first time I went with a team to Turkey to put on a conference for a number of outreach partners. We flew into the fascinating city of Istanbul, which then had a population of about 7 million people. As far as I know, it is the only city in the world that sits on the continent of Europe and the continent of Asia. We landed on the European side and we spent a day there before traveling down along the coast of the Sea of Marmara to the Dardanelles where we crossed over into Asia. It was quite a feeling to realize that just a short ferry boat ride across the water and we had left the continent of Europe and had set foot on the continent of Asia. During that time, my mind kept thinking about Acts chapter 16. Because in the chapter, we have the record of when the gospel jumped the other way. Not from Europe to Asia, but from Asia to Europe. That's the passage that we want to begin considering together in this message. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 16. And I invite you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Dr. Luke says, Then he came to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, there's a sense in which it ought to give us chills up and down our spines to think about this event. Because, as I said a moment ago, this is the historically momentous event of the gospel expanding from Asia to Europe. This is it, what we just read. This is the huge leap from Asia to Europe, from ancient Asia Minor into the West, and would eventually reach us this many years later and this far away. Up until this point, the gospel has been confined to the land of Israel or the Middle East and the land around Israel and to what we call modern-day Turkey. But God saw to it that the gospel did not remain confined. This records the great leap into Europe. 
This is a tremendous passage, not only from that historical standpoint, but also because, as you will see, it has some very practical and relevant principles for our own lives today in our own walk with the Lord. So let's see what it has to say. Verse 1, Dr. Luke says, Then he, referring to Paul, And he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. This is the second missionary journey of Paul, and this second missionary journey involved the team of Paul and Silas. Even though Luke uses the singular word he here in verse 1, the team actually consisted of Paul and Silas. But Paul not only wanted to have a teammate with him whenever he went out, he also wanted to have a young man into whom he could build his life and to whom he could give ministry experience. John Mark could have been that young man, but if you remember the story from earlier in the book of Acts, he had bailed out on the first journey, and that is actually what eventually led to the split between Paul and Barnabas, which were the two team members for the first journey. So when Paul and Silas came into Derby and Lystra, Paul thought about, and that's what Luke tells us here, Paul, Paul thought about the possibility of taking Timothy along on the rest of the trip. Timothy was somewhere between 16 and 25 years old at this time. He may have been saved on Paul's first missionary journey, or he may have been led to faith in Christ by his godly mother and grandmother. They certainly had a great impact in his life. And as you read the story, it's hard to know exactly when he came to faith, through them or by their example at the hand of Paul, but it doesn't really matter. But let me pause here for a word of encouragement maybe to husbands or wives who are in a marriage where your spouse is not a Christian. I'm sure it's easy to get discouraged and to think that there's absolutely no way your children will follow the Lord because of the example of your non-Christian spouse. But be encouraged by the example of Timothy. He came from a home where his father was not a believer, but his mother was, and he turned out to be, as we'll see in a moment, a powerful servant of the Lord in the first century era. So make sure that you live a consistent life in front of your children. Do everything you can to encourage them in the ways of the Lord and pray that God would work in their hearts to draw them to the Lord Jesus. That's what happened in Timothy's life. Verse 2 tells us, Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So he had a good reputation among the believers in the area, which must have meant he lived an exemplary life. And verse 3 tells us, Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for for they all knew that his father was Greek. This is an incident, this is a decision by Paul that has puzzled a number of people, especially in light of what happened at the Jerusalem Council in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 15. Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Was this a compromise, a wrong kind of compromise? Did he cave to the pressure? No, it was not a wrong compromise because it actually was consistent with what had taken place at the Jerusalem Council. You may remember that Paul refused 
to have Titus circumcised because Titus was a Gentile. But because Timothy was part Jewish, Paul felt it was important to circumcise Timothy for the sake of the Jewish people that they would be seeking to reach. But it's very, but it's very important to realize that Paul did not circumcise Timothy for salvation or anything related to salvation. Timothy was circumcised for service. And this actually ties in specifically with the decision of the Jerusalem Council. The biblical principle is this, and it was reaffirmed at the Jerusalem Council. And, and I could almost say, if you don't get anything else out of this message, get this. Here's the, the little saying, the little slogan. No to legalism in salvation. Yes to love in service. Let me say that again. No to legalism in salvation. Yes to love in service. Now what am I, what am I talking about? Paul refused to have Titus circumcised because he was a Gentile, and it would have sent the message to Gentiles and to Jews that Gentiles need to become Jews to be saved, which is wrong, which was formalized by the Jerusalem Council. No, Gentiles do not have to become Jewish to be saved. They don't, Gentile men don't have to be circumcised to be right with God. So when it came to Titus, Paul said, no, no. But because Timothy was part Jewish, Paul felt it was important to circumcise, circumcise Timothy for the sake of the Jews they would be seeking to reach. That is exactly what had been decided at the Jerusalem Council. No to legalism in salvation. Yes to love in service. Let me illustrate this from Paul's life further. Turn over to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Go past Romans to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And look at how Paul described it here. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. That was the way Paul lived. Willing to curb his freedoms for love's sake, for the gospel's sake, for service's sake. And that wasn't, please hear me, beloved, that wasn't legalism. He was willing to give, give up anything or restrict his liberty in any way for the sake of love and service. But watch this. If someone tried to get him to do that for salvation, he resisted firmly. You see, it's very important that we understand those distinctions because there is a lot of sloppy thinking in this area. It is wrong. It is absolutely wrong to yield to legalism in relation to salvation. It is wrong not to yield our liberty when it's for the sake of love and service. That's what what's, was happening in Acts 16. Paul circumcised Timothy because it would open more doors of ministry to the Jewish people 
who held circumcision up as the most important of all issues. And think about Timothy in this whole situation. He was a young man, and circumcision would have been very difficult for him physically, very painful, but he's willing to do it because his love for Christ and his love for people were so strong that he was willing to do whatever to be more effective in the service of Christ. No wonder he was so greatly used of God. He had a selfless servant's heart. Do you remember what Paul said about him over in Philippians 2? Keep going to the right, over past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and look at Philippians chapter 2. And as we jump into verse 19, remember that Paul is incarcerated in Rome, and Timothy is there by his side. But Timothy isn't a prisoner, so he would have the freedom to do whatever Paul needed him to do. And with that as background, notice what Paul says in verse 19. He says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. The thing that was so amazing about Timothy was the fact that he was willing to do whatever helped Paul and whatever promoted the cause of Christ. If Paul needed him to go somewhere, he would go somewhere. If Paul needed him to stay somewhere, he would stay. Timothy, as it has been said, was fat. Faithful, available, teachable. Timothy was willing to do whatever Paul needed him to do for the work of Christ and the church. Wherever the need was, Timothy was willing to fill it. And remember something, beloved. Traveling wasn't any fun in those days. There was nothing glamorous about it. It was very demanding, taxing. If Paul decided to send Timothy from Rome to Philippi, it would not have been an easy journey. It would have not have been a brief journey. It's not like Timothy could hop in a car or on a plane and motor over to Philippi from Rome. It would be a long, arduous journey. What was it about Timothy that gave Paul such confidence in him? Look at verse 20. He says, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Timothy thought like Paul thought. He was like-minded. Paul could say of him, his heart beats like mine. He has the same burdens, the same passions, the same drives, the same concerns that I have. This is a vivid illustration of what Jesus said in Luke 6.40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Timothy was discipled by Paul, and he turned out to be just like his teacher. Paul knew that whenever he sent Timothy to work with other people, Timothy Timothy would do things just like Paul did because they were like-minded. You could almost say Timothy was a clone of Paul, a carbon copy of Paul. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul told him, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Paul was saying, Timothy, pass on the torch. I've passed it to you. Now you pass it to faithful men who will in turn teach others. Paul considered Timothy a faithful man man and a good spiritual investment. He says about him in verse 24, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Notice that phrase, sincerely care, depending on your translation. That word care is a strong term. It's the same word used over in chapter 4, verse 6, in a negative sense. 
The famous verse of Philippians, be anxious for nothing. Here it's used in a positive sense. Timothy would have a heavy burden for the spiritual condition of the Philippians. Paul was confident of that. He would have an unselfish care for the spiritual condition of others. Over in chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells the Philippians not to be selfishly worried about their own circumstances, but a spiritual burden for others is to be commended. The word, this word care is also the same word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight when he says this, besides all of these other things, and he listed all that he had gone through, all of the the persecutions and all. He said, besides all, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul had a deep concern for all the churches, and Timothy caught that same burden. Paul was confident that Timothy would genuinely care for the spiritual well-being of the Philippians. But there's a sad note in this text. I don't know if you, you caught it. Paul had this confidence in Timothy, but it's a shame that he only had it in Timothy. Did you see that? He says here in verse 20, I have no one else like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Then he says in verse 21, he says, For, let me explain why, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. In some ways, this sounds worse in English than it is in Greek. As Lenski points out, this quote does not mean only their own interests, not at all those of Christ, for then they would not be Christians at all. It means they let their own interests interfere with Christ's interests. They do not pursue Christ's interests exclusively, end quote. That was the problem. It's not that Paul didn't know any other Christians, because obviously he did know other Christians. But Paul did not have the confidence in anyone else that they would sacrifice their own interests for the sake of the cause of Christ. Paul knew that many of the other Christians around him let their own interests interfere with Christ's interests. The word seek here in this verse, all seek their own, is in the present tense. It means they have an ongoing preoccupation with their own interests, which interferes with Christ's interests. I want to pause at this point and give us all a challenge based on this. I ask myself the same question as I ask it to you, and here it is. What do you sacrifice for the cause of Christ? Do you ever sacrifice time, money, sleep, pleasure, relaxation, your interests? Oh, I know that some of you do. But sadly enough, still today, verse 21 is true all too often of us. Timothy was an exception. He was a model of what Paul exhorted back in verses 3 and 4 of this same chapter, where he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The way verse 4 is worded provides the perfect balance. It's not wrong to look out for your own interests and the interests of your family or whatever. Sometimes you have to say no to ministry opportunities. You can't do everything. You can't say yes to everything. But the point is we have to be willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. Timothy provides an example for us. In fact, when you compare 
Stay with me on this one. When you compare verse 20 with verse 21 of Philippians chapter 2, you find that Paul equates, now catch this, Paul equates sincerely caring for the spiritual condition of others with seeking the things which are of Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. Paul equates, just look at the comparison he makes in verses 20 and 21. Paul equates sincerely caring for the spiritual condition of others with seeking the things which are of Christ Jesus. Let me say it another way. If you and I want to measure how much we seek the things of Christ Jesus, then we need to ask ourselves, what do we do to care for the spiritual condition of others? That's the question verses 20 and 21 force us to ask. Paul didn't have people around him who matched up to the standard that Timothy modeled. It's not that none of the other Christians would serve Christ or Paul at all. No, it's just that they weren't single-minded like Timothy. There were others who would maybe serve, but they would serve sort of at their own convenience. They weren't single-minded like Timothy. So again, I think it's right that we ask ourselves the question, is serving Christ just one item on our long list of interests? We, We shouldn't pass this off. This could be said of so many, so many of us today. There are believers to be taught and trained and encouraged and discipled, but it seems that very few care. There are children to be taught and trained and guided into the things of the Lord, but it seems that very few care. There are people to be reached right at our own doorstep, but it seems that very few care. There are burdens to be borne, but who cares? Why is this? Well, some of the times it's because, as believers, we just don't make the time. We're too busy, too preoccupied with our own interests. It's sad that Paul says, no one else cares. I don't have anyone else but Timothy that I have this kind of confidence in. That's a sad thought. In his commentary on the letter of Philippians, J. Dwight Pentecost has written this, and I quote, Recently I read one of the most disturbing articles I have read in a long time. This article predicted that in 10 years, vast numbers of Sunday schools across our nation would have to be closed because of lack of teachers to teach. It drew attention to the affluence of our day that makes it possible for people to have weekend homes and engage in weekend recreation that takes them away from a commitment to the Lord's work. It anticipated a four-day work week when men will have even longer weekends, providing for greater opportunity for recreation. That means less commitment to the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beware lest you become one of those about whom Paul writes when he says that no one cares, end quote. Beloved, that's a good warning. Let verse 21 sink deep down into our thoughts to be a continual challenge when Paul says, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Verse 22, but here's the contrast. Timothy, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. The phrase proven character speaks of approved character gained through testing. Timothy had a sound reputation, a sound, solid testimony. That is worth so much. 
Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. Your testimony for Christ is a valuable treasure. So protect it. Guard it. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that it takes way longer to build a solid reputation and testimony than it does to ruin it. All it takes is one foolishly sinful choice to ruin it for a long time. Do what you have to do to maintain integrity before God and people. Timothy had proven himself and his character through the years, and it all started in Acts 16. Let's go back to our text there in Acts 16. So Luke tells us that Paul recruited Timothy for this missionary journey. Verse 4 tells us, As they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. The decrees, of course, are the resolutions written in the letter from the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And you remember the slogan? You remember the saying? No to legalism in salvation. Yes to love in service. No to legalism in salvation. Yes to love in service. Those were the decrees. Those were the resolutions from Acts 15. Verse 5 says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. By the way, that is a cause and effect relationship. In other words, when Christians are strengthened in the faith, they will reproduce and make an impact on others. That's why Jesus built the foundation for world evangelism by discipling the twelve. Have you ever thought about it that way? It's remarkable. Jesus built the foundation for world evangelism by discipling twelve men. The key to evangelism is not programs, it's not methods, it is building strong believers who will reproduce. The churches were strengthened in the faith, and as a result, they increased in number daily. And verse 6 tells us, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. That would be the Roman province of Asia, ancient Asia Minor modern-day Turkey. Now, maybe you have the same question that most Christians have had through the years when they read the book of Acts. What in the world is going on here in verse 6? Why would the Holy Spirit forbid them to preach the gospel, the word in Asia? Why? If the word is to be preached everywhere, why would the Holy Spirit forbid them? And how did he do it? I mean, we're not told. How, How did he forbid them? I'm glad Luke doesn't tell us why or how they were forbidden because then we would have the tendency to pass this off as being irrelevant to us if our own circumstances weren't identical. I think this is purposely stated in general terms so we can glean some principles from this passage for our own lives, which we'll develop a little bit later in the message. So just hold on to that thought. This seems really strange that the Holy Spirit forbids them to preach the word in Asia. We're not told why. We're not told how. Just that it happened. They encountered closed doors everywhere they went in ancient Asia Minor. Verse 7, not only that, after they had come to Mysia, 
They tried to go into Bithynia. Now, you probably don't know the geography of that region, but that would be way up north there. They tried to go up there. So in other words, they tried to go east. They couldn't go east. They tried to go south. Couldn't go south. Tried to go north. They couldn't go north. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Again, the specifics aren't mentioned. We're just told they were forbidden. It's just like everywhere they turned, there was a closed door. Everett Harrison said, and I quote, It must have been frustrating to get such negative direction day after day. It was day after day, by the way. You know, when you talk about this region and them traveling all around, you know, Mysia and Bithynia and all of that, we're not just talking about just a momentary thing. This is going on and on and on. They just keep getting no's. Negative direction. Can you relate to that? I sure can. It seems like there are times when all the doors are closed and you wonder why, what in the world is the Lord doing? At those times, it's good to remember the words of Jesus in Revelation 3, 7. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. It's a reminder that the Lord is in control of all the doors. He opens doors and he shuts doors for his own sovereign purposes. And if we don't remember that, then we are very prone to discouragement. Some of you probably know what I'm talking about because you have experienced prolonged illness, which just seems to be a closed door. Everywhere you turn for some solution, some answer, it's a closed door. There seems to be no answer in the medical community. Or maybe you've experienced financial reversals. Every decision you make backfires, and they're not foolish decisions. You, you, you do the right thing, and it just blows up, which also seems to be a closed door. And there are many other specifics where you just keep trying to do the right thing in life, and it's like the door is slammed in your face. So what should we do? Notice verse 8. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Notice that they kept moving. That is significant. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. They didn't throw in the towel. They didn't say, man, if this is the way God's going to work, we're just trying to serve him, and he just keeps shutting us down. Then forget it. No, no, they just kept moving. This is a key thought for what I want to draw from this by way of application. They kept moving until they came to Troas, which, by the way, you you probably don't know your geography. That's way out on the west coast. In other words, they've gone everywhere they can go, and now they're standing at the ocean. It's like, Lord, what are you doing? We can't go anywhere else. We're at the ocean. So they couldn't go any further. And that's when God gave them direction. By the way, isn't it an encouragement to realize that even the Apostle Paul didn't always know exactly what God's will was for his life. You know, we have this picture of Paul that he always knew exactly what God's will was. He was never perplexed, never confused. He just always knew. He didn't know here. This wasn't the case here. He kept trying to go this direction, that direction. He kept being forbidden. He didn't know. What, Lord, what do you want us to do as a team? So God is about to tell him. Verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia. Again, if you don't know the geography, that's across the ocean over into Europe. Macedonia is Greece in modern-day Europe. So we're talking about going from Asia over to Greece. 
A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Remember now, everything that has taken place thus far has taken place in Asia, or ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But now, the, the Word of God, the Gospel, is about to jump across the water to Europe. Verse 10, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we, by the way, notice the the we there. Whenever you see the first person plural pronoun in the book of Acts, we or us, that is an indication that Dr. Luke has joined the team. He's the one who wrote this. He's in and out. He wasn't always there. So sometimes he will say they, they did this, they did that. But then when he says we did this or it happened to us, you know that Luke is there with them. So now the team has grown from Paul and Silas to Paul and Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke. Verse 10, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now think about this story, beloved. The Lord wanted them in Europe. It's obvious that's where they're going to end up. The Lord wanted them in Europe But he didn't tell them until they had gone as far as they could, until they had no other direction. Isn't that often the way it works? We we all want to know God's will, and we, we think we would like this. We think we would like him to just map it out for us. You know, just spell it out for me, my next five years, ten years. But God rarely maps it out for us that way in advance. I believe that's because he wants us to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. Trust him daily. He wants us to learn to adjust to the closed door, the closed doors, plural, that life throws our way. By the way, as another side note, this entire passage illustrates to us the fact that need doesn't necessarily constitute a call. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes people feel, sense, whatever word you want to use here, they they sense the Lord leading them into uh, maybe a particular ministry or into missions or to a particular field in missions, and they base that entirely on need. But there are needs everywhere. We will never meet all the needs. There were thousands of needs right in Asia, Asia Minor. But God wanted Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, who joined them in verse 10, to minister in Greece. So just tuck that away and remember that those of you who maybe feel led to missions, remember that, or in other types of ministry, whatever, you can't base your call exclusively on need. Yes, need is a part of the equation, equation but it's not all the equation. So when the team could go no farther, they were forced to look at another option, and God pushed the door wide open by giving Paul this vision. Isn't this so often the way God works in directing us? I'm not talking about giving you a vision. Don't expect that one. But he lets us run into closed doors so that we look for other options. In his book, It Is Toward Evening, Vance Havner tells the true story of a little country town in the south that depended totally on the cotton crop for its livelihood. The people did fairly well off the money that they made from the cotton crop until 
the boll weevil insect came in and devastated the cotton crop, and it almost bankrupted some, many, in this town. But the farmers wouldn't give up, so they came up with the idea of planting peanuts. And to their surprise, the peanut crop brought in more money than they had ever made from the cotton crop. As a result, you know what they did? Pretty, pretty novel. They erected a large monument in the shape of a boll weevil in their town. Vance Havner says this, quote, All things work together for good to the Christian, even our boll weevil experiences. Sometimes we settle into a humdrum routine as monotonous as growing cotton year after year, and then God sends the boll weevil. He jolts us out of our groove, and we must find new ways to live. Financial reversals, great bereavement, physical infirmity, a loss of position. How many have been driven by trouble to be better farmers and to bring forth far finer fruit from their soils? The best thing that ever happened to some of us was the coming of our boll weevil. Without that, we might have still been a cotton sharecropper, end quote. This passage is another illustration of that very idea. For years, for years I have found great encouragement in this passage concerning how to know the will of God. There are probably very few Christians who have not at one point or another struggled with that issue. How can I know the will of God? Does God want me to go this place to school or that place to school or take this job or that job? Or, you know, there are just myriads of questions that face us. How can we know the will of God? This is a key passage in my mind. In fact, when I am asked about how to know God's will, I often take people to these very verses because I believe they show us some very important principles. I've alluded to several of them already, but let me just spell them out by way of closing application for the message. I believe that when the number one desire of your heart is to do the will of God, whatever that is, whatever God has for you, you can find great comfort from what Paul and Silas experienced at this point in their lives. And what, what happened? What did they do? What's the, what's the principle? They followed what they thought was the will of God, what they knew to be the will of God as far as they knew it. And when God's will was other than what they were pursuing, God intervened and made them go another direction, led them another direction. Beloved, we can have that confidence, that same kind of confidence in our good and loving God if now, there's some contingencies of what I'm going to say here in closing. But if the deepest desire of our hearts is to do the will of God, He will guide us to do His will. God is not up in heaven playing games with us like He is some kind of glorified Easter bunny saying, Oh, you're getting warmer, you're getting closer, but I'm not going to tell you what my will is. I'm going to make you keep guessing. God wants us to do His will. And if we really want that, then we can find encouragement in the fact that he's not going to let us go off some direction and just totally miss the boat. Now, there are two exceptions to that. One is if we are, this should be an obvious, a given, but one is if we are rebelliously and stubbornly doing our own thing. There are no guarantees that God is going to stop us from going the wrong direction if that's the case, because he very well may let us go on to reap the consequences of what we've sown. 
Another possible circumstance in which God may choose not to intervene is if we haven't humbly asked him to guide us and give us direction, and if we haven't sought or listened to godly counsel. But I'm convinced that if we go to the Lord with decisions we have to make, and we say, Lord, all I want is to do your will in my life. All I want is to do your will in this situation. Please guide me. And if we have sought godly counsel, then we can move ahead with confidence, knowing that the Lord will open doors and close doors as we look to him. That's what Paul and Silas did. They just wanted to serve the Lord. They just wanted to live for the Lord. So they went out trying to do it, and they went this way, and they were forbidden. They went that way, and they were forbidden. And finally God said, no, where I want you is over here. I want you over in Europe. I want you in Greece. They thought they ought to preach the word in Asia, ancient Asia Minor, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow them. And as I said earlier, we're not told the specifics of how the Holy Spirit stepped in to forbid them. And I believe the reason why we're not told is because if ours weren't exactly the same, we'd say, oh, this doesn't apply to me then. I can't, I can't learn from this. The Holy Spirit stepped in to forbid them, and when he did, they thought they ought to go to Bithynia, but again the Spirit didn't permit them, so they kept moving. And eventually, when they couldn't go any farther, the Spirit directed them to Macedonia. God often works this very way in the lives of his children who, who just want to, to live for him and to serve him with their lives. As we move directions, we think God wants us to go and are convinced that God wants us to go. He steps in to redirect us if need be, if the desire of our hearts is to do his will. That's why I said that I find great encouragement in these verses. It shows the compassionate heart of our loving Father who guides his own as we seek to live for him. And thus we can live with that confidence. Let's pray as we close. Father, help us to see that this story here in the book of Acts, chapter 16, is not merely history, that you have recorded this for a reason beyond simply giving us a historical account. Yes, the history is important, but also, as Paul said to the Corinthians about the Old Testament, so it certainly would apply to the historical part of the New Testament, that these things were written as examples for us. And so we can learn from this example. We can learn that when it seems like we just keep getting negative direction, to keep moving, to not get so discouraged that we just quit, we just throw in the towel, we, we say we're done. No, just to have a, a passion to live for Christ and for our lives to count for Christ. So enable us, help us to draw from this passage, this story, the principles that can be a help in our lives and encouragement in our lives. And help us to think clearly about the principle that weaves its way through the first part of this story about the importance of no to legalism in salvation, yes to sacrifice in love and service. Teach us what that means and how to live our lives that way. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.